I hope everyone had a chance to read chapter 1 of Luke, because that is where we are going to camp out this morning, in Luke chapter 1. And what we're going to do is this. Uh, Jean and Renee are going to come read to us, and we are going to just look this morning at the story of Zechariah. Um, so we're going to read from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 25, and then we're going to skip over to verse 57 to 66, and then I'm going to read the prophecy, the poet, poetic prophecy that's there. And as we read, what I want to ask you guys to do, that's why I was hoping everybody bring their paper Bible, maybe a pen, I don't know if you write in your Bible like I do, but to, to be looking for where God is active. What is God specifically doing in this story of Zacharias? So every time you see something that's, that cues you into, or helps you to think, oh, this is what God is doing at this moment. This is how God is active. I just would like you to make note of that, whether you want to circle it or underline it or make a list somewhere, just to be aware of the activity of God, and not just in generic, he's active, but specifically what is he doing as we work our way through this story in the book of Luke. So, Gene and Renee, you guys want to come on up here, and they're going to read. If you guys could make sure, I don't know who's reading first. Okay, so Renee's going to read first, and she's going to start in chapter 1, verse 5, and then Jean is going to pick up in chapter 1, verse 57. You guys got that? So you don't like, whoa, where'd he go? You'll know where we went, all right? All right, thank you. Is that on? Let me... All right. Luke 1, 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, 
and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. And jumping over to 57. Now time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they, and they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted, to be, he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed. And he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came upon their neighbors. And all these things were talked about all through the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid, down, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then shall this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him, all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. We have his word. Well, what I want to do is this. I'm going to sum this up for you. Here, if I had to sum up, the, the focus this morning really is going to be on, on the prophecy, his prophecy. So I'm summing up his prophecy right now, and I'm going to explain how the other information that we get from Zechariah's life is relevant to the story. But just for the sake of this prophecy, I would sum it up this way, that God visits his people to exercise fierce mercy. And I'm gonna, we're going to unpack this. God visits his people to exercise his fierce mercy. Now, let me show you why I landed on this. We're gonna, I hope that every time I preach, you feel like you're kind of in a preaching Bible study, and I'm not just telling you what it says, but I'm showing you what it says. So look at verse 68. Here's why I'm using this language of God visits us to exercise fierce mercy. So look with me at verse 68. Blessed be the God, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has 
visited and redeemed his people. He has visited. So you've got this idea of visiting at the beginning of this prophecy. Then look down at verse 78. Because of the tender mercies, that's where we're going to talk about mercy in a minute, the tender mercy of your God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us. So do you see the bookends in the prophecy? He, he visits us in verse 68. He's visiting us in verse 68. So we are being visited by God. This is a stunning reality that God would visit his people. And, and if you notice even the tense in verse 68, Zechariah is pretty confident. He almost says it as if it's already happened. He has visited us. In verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation. He, he is almost looking into the future, but bringing it into the present. That's where his faith is. He has a confidence in what God is going to do. But as you listen to what Renee and Jean just read, you know that his confidence was not always there, was it? He wasn't always very faith-filled. Um, back in our story, we know that he was struck silent, and I would argue deaf too, because they were making signs to him. So he couldn't speak, he couldn't hear, because he didn't believe the words of Gabriel. And so that was his consequence from God. Now what Luke does to, to elevate this point and I don't know how you, how you read this, these first two chapters of Luke, but what Luke does intentionally is he weaves together the story of Zechariah and the story of Mary. The, the stories are woven together. So if you, you notice we skipped over the parts that were Mary's parts, but, but Luke does it. He puts these two stories together so the reader will compare and contrast Zechariah and Mary. So let's, let's do that for a second. Let's compare at a high level Zechariah and Mary, because I think this is what Luke wants us to do, at least one of the things Luke wants us to do. So what do we know about Mary? So I, we didn't read that, but most of us kind of have probably a better understanding of the Mary's part than Zechariah's part, at least I did, before reading it this week. So we know that Mary is a girl, right? I said high level here. <laughs> Zechariah is a Man, uh, Mary is young, a, a young teen, whereas Zachariah, it seems, is very old. Mary is, uh, and, and I'm, I don't like that I have to say this, but Mary was culturally insignificant as a young lady. Zachariah, on the other hand, is a priest. Mary is of no family significance. She doesn't have a family history like Zachariah, where we hear that he's from the division of Abijah. And even Elizabeth, his wife, is from the daughters of Aaron. Mary's character is not, is not explained here in the passage, but we're told that Zechariah and Elizabeth are righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. Mary, as a woman, would have to have stayed in the outer courts of the temple, in the, in the one area just for women, whereas Zechariah is going in doing the special task of burning incense in the presence of the Lord. So you would think, in light of all of this, who would have the greater faith? You'd think Zechariah would, but obviously Zechariah is the one who can't talk and can't hear while Mary is telling everybody that'll hear what has happened to her. So it seems the opposite of what we'd expect happens in this story. Both of them ask similar questions. Mary wants to know, how can this be that I'm going to have a baby? Zechariah asks, how can this be in my old age? But obviously her questioning was a curiosity as a young lady, and his was out of unbelief. And so, yes, both are chosen by God. Mary finds favor with God, and Gabriel appears to both of them. And I think there's something for us to take away, because we have children in the room, 
We have ladies in the room, men in the room. We have some of you maybe have parents, great parents, great, 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 great parents who all love Jesus. And some of you, you are the first one in your family to believe in Christ. But I think it's good to point out that God will exercise his fierce mercy to anyone he chooses regarding of your age, your gender, your culture, your family line, or your position. God is there, and he will do what he is going to do to show his mercy. In fact, I love this in the story. I love the comparing and contrasting of Mary with, with uh, Zachariah in this. Zachariah may have been able to enter the temple to be in the presence of God, whereas Mary, she would actually become a temple for the presence of God to dwell for nine months. I mean, is God not amazing in what he does in this story showing where his presence was in the temple and where his presence would go into the womb of a young girl? And while Mary, can't, while Mary can speak freely, Zechariah will be silent and deaf for the next nine months. Now, you may wonder why the silence thing. You know, God could have struck him blind or crippled him or said, you're not going to be able to see this baby be born. That's going to be the penalty. Why silence? I think God had a purpose in that. I think God had a clear purpose in choosing to silence Zechariah. So think with me for a moment about the particular moment in historic Israel life that they are living in in this moment. They are at the tail end of 400 years of silence. God's not speaking. God hasn't spoken to them for over 400 years. No prophets, no dreams. God basically stopped talking to his people. So then God silences Zechariah the priest, I think is a picture of the 400 years of silence. Let the world know God is about to speak. Silence is over. The priest's tongue is loosed. God is now going to speak to you through John the prophet born from Zechariah. The time of silence is over. I, I can't imagine trying to think like, what would it have been like to live at like those people where you're like, you hear the stories, you, you read your Old Testament, you go, these are our people, this is what happened. But God doesn't really talk anymore. Are they true? Are these stories really true? Because God's not active like he was in our ancestors. And so here it is. God, in this moment, is breaking the silence. He is piercing the silence, and he is about to visit his people. He's going to visit them through the words of John, the prophet, and he's going to visit them through the word, the living word, Jesus, the Son of God. So what does it look like when God breaks the silence and visits his people? I mean, imagine if you stored up 400 years worth of life, never hearing from God, and now God descends. What would you expect God to say? What would you think he would say? Well, if you understand God's holiness, God's one-of-a-kindness, that he's completely not like us in any way, you would think that God's coming would be a very bad thing. That's what I would think. A very bad thing. Almost like uh, when you were in school and your principal would come into the classroom the day after you had a substitute. Or maybe your boss comes into your office right after a major project did not go so well. But not so with God. When he visits, it's because he wants to show off his tender mercy. 
I imagine you caught the phrase in verse 78. Look there with me. It is because of his tender mercy. You've got to love that phrase. Tender mercy. Now, why am I pulling that out of everything that's here? Matt, you're just picking your favorite phrase and using that. Let me explain to you why I think this is to be highlighted here. So we see his tender mercy being highlighted in verse 78. And then I want you to go back up to verse 58. Verse 58, look what it says about the Lord. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy. Literally, it is magnified mercy or enlarged mercy or glorified mercy. So their experience of God was one of glorified mercy. And then in verse 68, we talked about this word visited, that he visited his people. The word visited there literally means to look out for someone or to care for someone, which is what mercy is. It's, it's caring for those who have needs. So the word visited itself in verse 68, and then again down in verse 78, carry with it the very idea of mercy. And then look at verse 72. We're going to see it again here. To show the mercy promised to our Father. So we've got mercy being woven in and out this passage, and specifically this prophecy, until you get to verse 78, where it talks about his tender mercy. Tender mercy. Mercy is God's goodness towards those who are in a miserable state. It's God's care for those who are suffering. And tender, in this case, has this idea of inward affection, emotions that originate, in the Greek it would say, in your, in your bowels, in the lowest, deepest recesses of someone's heart. In Greek poetry, this word would have been used as a violent term associated with anger or love. So it's an energized, violent term, which is why I think I like the word fierce. It's intense. You, you pick the word you want to use. Maybe it's hard for you to think of mercy and fierce. But I want you to get the idea that this is not just a passive mercy. This is an intense, vigorous mercy of God. And when God visits his people, it is to show off or to exercise this fierce mercy that he has for his people, and he does it in breathtaking ways. Now, I just want to pause here to acknowledge that maybe this morning there's some that are here or within my voice, that are miserable. Maybe you would say life right now is very hard. You're suffering. Maybe you're weighed down by burdens or trials. Listen, I believe God wants to visit you this morning with his fierce mercy. He wants to pour his mercy down on you. And to prove to you that when God visits his people, that he does so with fierce mercy, Zechariah highlights a bunch of things here, that expressions of his mercy. And so what I want to do is look at a couple of those together. What does it look like when God visits his people with fierce mercy? What does the mercy look like? Let's put some meat on the word mercy. So I just want to highlight a few of these here. First one is this. I think he visits his people here with fierce redeeming mercy. With fierce redeeming mercy. We saw it in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's redeemed his people. Now, most of you guys know the whole idea of redeeming something is to purchase it, right? To buy it. 
And we know that our sin has created a great debt. A record of debt is mounted up against us, and the way you pay off your debt is to die. That is the way you do it. People say we have a debt we cannot pay. That's not true. You're going to pay for it. You're going to die. God says, you will pay for your debt of sin by dying. And the amount that we owe is eternal dying, eternal death. And the price that must be paid, according to Romans 6.23, you guys know these verses, the wages of sin is death. So we must die. So when Jesus visits us in fierce mercy, he dies as your substitute. You must die for your sin to pay the wages. And he says, no, I'm going to die in your place. In his cross work, he cancels the record of debt that stood against you. And it was a long record of debt, page after page after page, and he cancels it for us. Another thing I see here is he visits us with fierce, unstoppable mercy, or fierce, powerful mercy. I see this in the phrase, horn of salvation, verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us. This is not talking about a kind of horn. This is talking about an animal horn. It's not a phrase we would use. We wouldn't see uh, maybe a big burly guy and go, wow, look at him. He's a horn of salvation. (laughs) But the idea here is of power and of strength, that he is unstoppable. It would be like the the deadly weapon of an ox. I don't know if you guys have ever seen like a a real ox that's, you know, it's back six feet high and the thing's got massive horns. It would kill you with one strike of its horn. Well, that's what the picture is here. There's multiple places in Scripture. None, it's funny, none in the New Testament. This is the only time in the New Testament that Jesus is called the horn of salvation. But m- multiple times in the Old Testament, this picture, this imagery is used to show off strength and power. So Psalm 18 is one of them specifically, Psalm 18 too, where David writes this, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. I, I gotta love this. I can, almost, I can almost see David with his chest puffed out. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So the idea here is that for Jesus to be the horn of our salvation is that he is mighty and fierce, that his mercy is strong and his mercy is unstoppable. I also see Jesus visiting with with a fierce covenant-keeping mercy, or a promise-keeping mercy. This whole section here from verse 69 right down through 74 is all about the promises made and the covenant that was made with David and with Abraham. So look at verse 69. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved. So here's the theme we're going to see. Saved from our enemies. So he makes this promise to David that they'd be saved from their enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Verse 72. To show the mercy promised. So here we have a promise to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies enemies. So promises were made to David and to Abraham that they would be delivered from the hands of those who hate them and from the hands of those who would punish them. Now when Zechariah reads this, who do you think he's thinking of? 
New Testament times. Well, who is he thinking of that's the enemy? Rome, probably, right? He's probably thinking about Rome. Rome is the enemy. And to some degree, I think he's processing this in a, in a right way for, what he, for the information that he has. Now, we often think of enemies, we think of Satan, sin, death are enemies, which is definitely true. But I think when Jesus visited us, he had someone else maybe in mind that we needed to be rescued from that we often forget about. See, Rome could only kill the body, right? And Satan doesn't send anyone to hell, in case you're confused about that. Satan won't be torturing people in hell. Satan won't be in charge in hell. Satan will be tortured in hell. Satan will be being punished by God in hell, along with everyone else who does not love and treasure Jesus Christ above all. So in some ways, we could say our greatest problem is our enmity with God, not Satan or even death. Our biggest enemy, in some ways, is God. David would have known this. I mean, he writes this in Psalm 11. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Listen to the wrath in this. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. David knows that God has wrath stored up for the sinner. Paul understood this in Romans 5. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath, the fierce wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, so we are enemies with God, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, there's mercy, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Listen, church, remember, your biggest problem is the wrath of God that is due us for our sin. And Jesus, in his fierce mercy, has kept the promise and the covenant that he's made in the past in order to forgive us our sins. Jesus has absorbed all the wrath that you and I deserve for our sin. I also see a fourth thing here. I see Jesus visiting us with fierce, sin-forgiving mercy. <laughs> with sin-forgiving mercy. He caught it in verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So in the Old Testament, you'd, you'd kill an animal, shed its blood, and it says that that blood could never forgive anyone. It just covered over your sins, and they knew that. So there's this mystery in the Old Testament. How is God going to forgive sins while remaining holy and righteous? Well, guess what God does when he visits us? We studied this in Colossians. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Notice with me, how many of your sins are forgiven? All. Embrace that word. All of them are forgiven because of his work on the cross. Obviously, Zechariah didn't know what was going to happen, but he knew enough 
through the power of the Spirit, to know sins would somehow be forgiven without compromising God's holiness. And Paul tells us here, (laughs) this is how it happened, all of your sins are forgiven because Christ was able to nail them to the cross. All of them. Every sin you did when you were five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, a teenager, in college, last week, yesterday, this morning, all the ones you will do tomorrow are all forgiven because Jesus visited us with fierce, forgiving mercy. Jesus also visits us with fierce, light-shedding mercy. Light-shedding mercy. Verse 79, he comes to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. He brings light to those who sit in darkness. The Bible pretty clearly tells us that you and I were sitting in a cell in the dark, bound up, waiting to die, (laughs) waiting for death is what it says. The shadow of death is coming. Thinking the whole time that we're actually in the light. Believing we've got the right perspective. Believing we are living in reality as we sat in bondage in a jail cell in the dark waiting for our death to take place. Totally deceived. Paul knew this. And in 2 Corinthians, he explains it to us in beautiful, beautiful imagery. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness— has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We always talk about Jesus being the light of the world, especially around Christmas time, right? He's the light of the world. Jesus is not only our light, but he's a light that shone down into our darkness, revealing the glory of who he is, so that no longer do we sit in darkness or wait in the shadows of death. Instead, we sit and stand in light, waiting for more life to come as our earthly life comes to an end. One more mercy thing. Jesus visits us with fierce, peace-guiding mercy. <laughs> See that in 79? To guide our feet into the way of peace. To guide our feet into the way of peace. And Ephesians 2 tells us that he himself is our peace. And his peace came because of his blood. He has drawn you near to him through his blood. As a human who fights fear and anxiety, I love these verses. Jesus visits us in our fear and our anxiety, and in his presence we find peace. Peace. God visits his people with fierce peace, guiding mercy to guide us in the way out of anxiety and into the way of peace. So there's just a few. There's more to celebrate in there than just that, but there's some of them. Fierce mercy, beautiful mercy, 
powerful mercy. So after nine months of silence, what flows out of Zechariah's spirit-filled heart is praise and blessing to God for visiting his people with fierce mercy. Now, this had to be the work of the Spirit. Because if I couldn't have children and I was getting very old and I suddenly found out I could have children and I found out that I was going to have a son and that my son was prophesied about in the Old Testament and then I was suddenly able to speak, do you know what the first thing would have come out of my mouth? (laughs) We're going to have a boy. (laughs) And he's anointed by God and I can show you in the Old Testament where he, where he is in God's mind before he was even birthed on the earth. That's where I would have gone. After all, isn't it our inclination to always want to brag about our children, even from the moment they're born? My son's head is in the 98th percentile. <laughs> My daughter's weight is in the 99th percentile. <laughs> My kid is an honor roll student at Newmarket Middle School. Whereas Zechariah could say, my son is great before the Lord, filled with the Spirit while he was still in Elizabeth's womb, and he's coming out in the power of Elijah, so beat that, drop the mic. (laughs) Yet it's not till verse 76, more than three quarters of the way through this poem, that he even mentions his son. You'd think Mary was the one who wrote the first three quarters of this, wouldn't you? Why wait so long, John, to, or Zechariah, to talk about John? Well, I think Zechariah knew that having a son in his old age wasn't the point. He knew that John's birth wasn't the main thing. He knew that John's birth was not so he could draw attention to John. I think Zechariah knows that John existed to point to someone greater than himself. And so because of this, his poem flows the way it does. A little side note to parents. Your kids don't exist to draw attention to themselves. <laughs> your kids don't exist so they can be great, and they don't exist to make you look great. They exist to point to someone else. And they need us as parents to remind them over and over and over again that their very existence is to live so that God gets attention, so that God gets applause, so that Christ gets praised. That is why they exist. So parents, I think we can take a lesson here from Zechariah and have our children fall in the proper place in our lives three-quarters of the way down in the life of our poem to Jesus. Zechariah's eyes were open to this, Perhaps because his mouth and his ears were closed. (laughs) Nine months with reduced uh, distractions of speech and hearing positioned him, I think, to God's reality. Some commentators say that he quotes over 33 Old Testament passages in this one little prophecy. And perhaps that's because he spent nine months in his Old Testament in silence meeting with God. (laughs) Well, at the end of the day, Zechariah gives us our application for this morning. It's pretty clear in verse 74. He tells us how we're to respond to this. 
Verse 74 says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Fierce mercy should lead to fearless serving. (laughs) There's our application. Fierce mercy should lead us to fearless serving. God has shown us fierce mercy so that we can live holy and righteous before him all the days of our lives. The word serve in this verse is the word for worship. It is the word worship. It probably should be translated worship. And we know as a church that worship has nothing to do with singing and everything to do with us falling on our faces before Christ saying, what does my Lord want from his servant? That's what it means to be a disciple after all. Jesus visits us with such vigorous mercy so that you and I would be free, free from sin and free from self to lay down our lives, set apart unto him to be righteous and holy until the day we die. So that's our mission. That's our response to what God has done for us in showing us great mercy. So may that be our aim this week. God, how can I live holy and righteous before you all the days of my life? And I also think we should be challenged this morning to learn what it means to sit in silence. I was thinking it'd be really good. What if we all decided that for the next nine months, we weren't going to speak. (laughs) What if we decided this week we would take nine minutes every day to not speak? What if we looked at Zechariah and we said, you know what, I'm going to voluntarily, thank goodness, not under the punishment of God, (laughs) sit for nine minutes a day, block out all sound, not say a word, and just meditate on his fierce mercy. What if we spent nine minutes every day this week enjoying and celebrating in our hearts, in silence, with no distractions, the fierce mercy of God? And then at the end, minute number 10, we got on our faces and said, God, because of your tender mercy, I want to serve you in holiness and righteousness all the days of my life. Amen? Amen. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your mercy, your wonderful, glorious, unending mercy. Thank you for seeing us in our misery, in our sin, in our bondage, in our sickness in our suffering. And Jesus, thank you for visiting us, not to punish us in our sin, but to redeem us and deliver us and forgive us and to care for us. You are an amazing, amazing God. Jesus, we we honor you and we praise you. And we do bow before you this morning. We say, Jesus, not our will, but yours. We say, what does our Lord want to say to his servant? We say that we are the Lord's servant. Do with us as you please. May your fierce mercy lead us to fearless worship. 
And Lord, I do pray for this week. I ask that you would allow us to get isolated and undistracted with no TV or phone or anything else to celebrate your fierce mercy and to encounter you in fresh ways that will bring peace and joy to our hearts. Meet us this week, I pray, that we might live for you in righteousness and holiness until the very day that we die. In Jesus' name, amen.